0: Let me tell you a little something about L.A. All
1: right. One, two, three. Here it. we go, Danny. We got a, uh, a special guest of us. And go ahead and leave the introductions on the ruckus.
0: Buenos dias, Los Angeles and beyond. <laughs> this is this is Danny Andelon, and, and we are on today with a super special guest. Um, someone that has become uh, somewhat of a mentor to Lewis and I, um, and I, I met him uh, in on a congressional race a couple of years ago uh, here in Los Angeles uh, with Congressman or then Assemblymember uh, Jimmy Gomez, and ultimately he got elected. But we're, today we're going to talk to someone who came in and and gave us a a bump uh, in in what ultimately took us over the top on that race. But today we have uh, a preeminent Latino vote expert <laughs> and president founder of solidarity strategies and New York times op-ed contributor and an author of his debut memoir, Theo Bernie. And if, if you all are looking at our video, I got the Theo Bernie t-shirt rocking <laughs> it today. Um, The book provides an inside look at the strategy behind the historic Latino operation he pioneered on the Bernie 2020 campaign. Chuck is also the founder of Nuestro PAC, a partisan super PAC that aims to educate, mobilize, and turn out Latinos in key states for the 2020 general election and beyond Chuck, all that is awesome, but what I love about you is that you often say your biggest accomplishments are your twin grandsons, Wyatt and Rowan brothers, so welcome to The Ruckus. Uh, we love to have you and hear from you today, brother.
2: Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Louis. Uh, of course, it's my honor to be here. I couldn't think of anywhere uh I would, could think to be five days, four days before an election here. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I would only take this time for my two brothers. Uh, it is, I'm measuring a one-arm paper hanger over here, and we have <laughs> involved in a lot of races. And so, look, I'm proud to see what y'all have done. I'm glad you're continuing to see the Keep the Spirit Up even afterwards. And so uh, I could not be more proud of both of you to work with you, uh, to be around you, to see what you did, to bring my vision to light out there. And I know we're going to have some great conversations.
1: No, no. And Danny, you forgot to mention MSNBC contributor. My daughter came out of her bedroom one day. She's only like 13 years old and she goes, Chuck Roach is on MSNBC. Uh, I thought that was the coolest thing, Chuck, because, you know, she paid attention. That means she paid attention to what we were doing. I mean, she's got a good daddy she's watching Rock Station.
0: <laughs> and for sure, the one thing I wish we could have done more is have you out here more, brother. I know you were uh, going across the country and making sure that all operations were go, all cylinders were on. And, um, and 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 to be honest with you, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we met and how the whole Bernie Sanders uh, California team came about uh, because to me it was it was a dream come true uh, to get a call from a presidential campaign and say um, hey would you be interested (laughs) and before you told me who it was I was like yes Chuck sign me up (laughs) and you're like wait I haven't told you who who or what we're doing here and so I remember that call Um, I remember you asked me about my work um, I remember that, uh, you know, you were interested in putting together um, consultants and field operation uh, strategists in California, and, and I felt honored, to be quite honest with you, I felt honored um, and privileged to, to have gotten that call, brother. So thank you for, for that call in early 2019, uh, which ultimately led to what we did here in Los Angeles for you
2: yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. And I think that bringing you on was the way I got to meet Lewis and, you know, you brought Lewis on and I think that it just goes on. There was a vision that we had in the very beginning of this thing. And the vision was we wanted this campaign to be reflective of America. We wanted this campaign to be reflective of the Bernie movement. We wanted this campaign to reflect the uh, grassroots activity that had never really stopped from the first, first campaign. And so, you know, when with, with me in charge, uh, with Jeff and Faz and many others of what it would look like, it was is really, really important to Bernie. You know who me and Bernie had many conversations about California. He felt so connected to California, and also we knew we wanted to start early, that we wanted to have the right people in place. And so, you know, I had knew you from the Jimmy Gomez race. Jimmy, a good progressive brother, who was yep. going to be for those of you listening who was in the Javier Becerra seat, who ran a special election. Uh, and I got to go out there and be around Jimmy and his team and see people on the ground. That's where I got to meet Danny and Nala. And be honest, you know, I started calling around California to progressive campaigns and. Danny, your name came up and other other names came up. I talked to Jimmy's campaign manager at the time. I talked to a number of other people at the time. And I was really looking for people of color, right? And I think there's enough woke white activists in California that I didn't need any more of that. <laughs> <For> so <sure. laughs> I was looking for brown and black and Asian and multicultural people who we could put in charge. So this campaign, again, could reflect the values of Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, I was really honored that you took this journey with Bernie with me and that we could get this thing done and that you built out a really special team in California that I think thinking about being at the very few times that I was was just exactly reflective of. The- that community from Lewis right on down.
1: No, exactly. And, and Chuck, I, I know that the ultimate decision was, was yours, but the fact that I was connected to Danny obviously introduced me to you. And it brings me to the, a point in your book where you talk about, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but where you talk about the measuring stick for a Latino program or a program of color is not just somebody who can uh, uh, do Spanish lit, it's, it's the staff it's, you, 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 there's, a, there's a portion in your book, if you can elaborate on that, and you did a little bit here on how you staffed Bernie, but you speak intentionally about a Latino program is not just reaching out to Latinos. It's, it starts internally and goes externally.
2: Right. I think it starts with the philosophy of, of when the way we built out the national team, the headquarters, and how y'all built out California, and then how you built out the field operation. It all had the same synopsis, if I can use that word. I'm not really sure what it means, but it sounds good. So uh, and the definition in my mind is we didn't want to silo off brown people and black people and Asian people, right? We made Latino outreach Part of the overall campaign. And the first thing you do in this multi layered approach of not just having Spanish language lit, Lewis, is what we did, which was the first office was in the Latino community. The first hires were Latinos and people of color. The next hires were other people of color, right? And we didn't say we're just going to have this Latino event. It was a Bernie event that just happened to be in a Latino neighborhood. These were RFDs that just happened to be Latino who were running the whole uh, regional field department. These field Organizers weren't Latino field organizers, even though they were brown and could speak Spanish, they were organizers that were encompassed in the overall organizing platform that we had built out. For too long, I had sat, and I've done this for over 30 years, for too long, I sat in that room and watched Latinos be siloed off into some Latino department, not giving any budget, not giving any influence, and not really understanding what the overarching theory of the whole campaign was and what's this overall strategy. So when people, when I tell reporters and big think tank folks here in DC eggheads, I call them uh, the reason why Bernie Sanders won dramatically the Latino vote. It's not because we had some great Latino department. It was because we did not have a Latino department. We did not have a Latino outreach director. And I think that's the key.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: I I have often talked about um, Latino representation not only at the elected official level, right? Like we've already done that. We've accomplished, not across the country because our numbers are still dismal when it comes to Latino representatives in office, but here in Los Angeles, particularly in California, we've done a great job with the blue wave to be able to uh, lift up Latinos and represent our communities. What I have often said, and in the last six years that I was on my own uh, doing campaign consulting and campaign work, is we need to continue to build the infrastructure for latino representation it doesn't stop at the elected officials we got to get people uh, on commissions we got to make sure that people are in the heading the board latinos that are heading boardrooms and we have to have latino firms that come out of out of these operations to grow Latino consulting firms, right? You often do hashtag Brown consultants matter. And, and I think that that speaks to what we were trying to accomplish here in Los Angeles. The fact is that in California, even though we've helped get a lot of these Latino electeds into office, we, they often go and continue to hire non-Latino firms, to run their operations, right? And I think that that's where I think we're missing the boat to continue to empower our communities. And and look, we're going to see a backlash here in LA when we start redistricting and the flight of Latinos out of Los Angeles and the influx of the younger white uh, families that are coming back into these neighborhoods.
2: Let me take that a step further and tell you on a national scale exactly what you're talking about to affirm what you and Lewis have seen in los angeles currently there's 10 targeted senate seats that are marginal either way we're either defending a democrat in michigan and in alabama or we're trying to pick up one of the seats one of the two seats in georgia one in texas one in north carolina one in montana one in iowa so let's say that there's 10. i've been doing research for the last two two weeks to write a post a piece for after the election's over out of those 10 senate seats guys There is not but one person of color managing any of those 10 races, just one. And it's the incumbent in Alabama who happens to have a black man. There's no black women, there's no brown women, there's no brown men, there's no Asians, there's no people of color, just white women and white men managing every Senate race in America. And if you look below that, in the TV consultants, the male consultants and the digital mail and TV, which are the three areas where people make money in campaigns, the right. big three consultants, right? Of all of those and all of those campaigns, none of them have any consultants that are owned by people of color. So even though we do have some diversity in our candidates and, and what I should have said to start that as I'm thinking about it, Lewis, is that of those top 10, six of these people are people of color. So the candidates to your point, Danny, are black, and brown, and Native American, but Mm. because the power brokers say, you have to hire these people to manage, and you have to hire these consultants, or you won't get our support, it's all nothing but white men and white women. People see me, I get to write a book, I'm on TV, I'm successful, I've got a beautiful fiance, I've got these great grandkids, like, I'll live the American dream, but you don't understand that I've been doing this for 30 years, and I have yet. I've run four congressional races, I mean, four presidential races. I've yet to ever work on a Senate race in my life. Wow. I've never worked on a top tiered congressional race in my life. I've never worked on a governor's race in my life. That's directly for those candidates because at that level, the establishment power brokers in the Democratic Party say, you will use these consultants, you will hire from this group of people, or you don't get our support.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's so so unfortunate and so true. We've we've done a lot of work at the very municipal kind of like the, the 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 threshold of elected offices, and we've done a lot of work at the ground level. And as we begin to see these people, even even some that we've worked with along the way, get to that national stage, you don't see uh, people of color. Uh, running these campaigns anymore, running the mail, the mail program, running the digital program now, which a lot of people are investing way more than ever. And so that is, that is a problem, not because it hurts pocketbooks for consultants because, <laughs> because I got a job. That isn't the issue. The The issue that we're talking about is building and continuing to grow the power and the influence that Latinos have in our political infrastructure.
2: So let me let me tag. Let me, let's make let's turn this to Bernie and do a comparison. Yes. So then I'm there in the beginning. And, and in the book, you read the book, you'll see how I was offered the campaign manager job. I turned that down. I position myself in a position of power to actually run the campaign day to day in the states. Faz, who's a remarkable man dealing with Bernie, dealing with press, dealing with all the things that I'm glad I never had to deal with. And so, because of that, I got to help build and put together the vision of what I thought a campaign should be. And, so, and thank God for Bernie and Faz and Jeff to trust me to do that. And so, what that meant was every department head or a deputy department head at our headquarters was a person of color, right? Awesome. And most of them, majority of them, women. It never goes reported. You hear this Bernie bro bullshit, but it's 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 it was women and women of color. Yep. And then because I interviewed you, Danny, I interviewed Lewis, I interviewed mm-hmm. everybody to bill out every state yep. team. That was majority women and women of color. People don't. It goes underreported that our state director was a white woman in Iowa. Yep. Our state director ended up being a woman uh, in South Carolina. State director, a deputy state director in California, woman. State yep. director in Calif- Colorado latina woman like and then if you look down it starts at the top right so the first thing danny has is is danny has to hire a field director he brings in lewis multicultural comes from a diverse background i'm telling his bio because i remember the union organizing the seiu contacts and then he hires fo's who look like the community and that's the deal is if you start there people don't realize Mm -hmm. it wasn't just the staff because it's easier now to say define the staff even though these senate races don't have any but the majority of all of the vendors that we used for Bernie bumper stickers, mail, buttons were all owned by people of color. Not all of them. Like there's 40 something percent owned by white people, but 60% were owned by Latino firms, whether it was my firm or another firm or a black owned firm like Kara Turington who did all of our African-American stuff. And she did the white stuff. Like I didn't pigeonhole consultants like the Chuck Roaches and the Solidarity team who did almost all of the literature. We weren't in charge of the Latino outreach. I was in charge of outreach. I wasn't in charge of Latino mail. I was in charge of all the mail. Awesome. I wasn't in charge of of the Latino TV and cable. I was in charge of all of that. That's the difference of what we're talking about.
0: That's awesome,
1: man. But Chuck, I I feel that as Brown consultants matter, it's a reflection of Brown votes matter, right? So what we notice here in Los Angeles is that these consultants that we're talking about, these, I call them the blue chip consultants. Sure. They, they look at a uh, a, a universe and they say, well, we average turnouts only 19%, 20%. So we're going to go for the highest propensity voters. We're going to put all our money into this, this consti- constituency, this universe. And as a result of it, we get a mayor elected who received with, with a turnout of only 21% of the vote in the entire city of Los Angeles. So what they do is they, they don't reach out to people of color. Who are inactive voters? You, if remember, you told us that we're going after those voters who are infrequent voters to empower those voters um, to talk to them. I, I believe you've often said you will get their vote if we get out there and ask for it. If we get if we bother to work with them for the, uh, toward to them, versus let's just uh, let's just campaign within that universe of high propensity. That is the practice, but we notice in smaller races, if we go outside that margin, we can win, but go ahead, Chuck.
2: It's because we knew you knew Danny knows that it's the textbook way that everybody runs the same campaign. You pull up the voter file. You're both shaking your heads because you've been in the room a hundred times. You
0: go <laughs> yep. after,
2: you go after right. somebody who has a, a turnout score between, you, know, you know, 700, They're got a partisan score of this. Like the, we've, 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 we've almost taken too much of the technology where we leave just huge swath of the electorate out of communications, right? And because Latinos mm-hmm. turn 18 faster than others, they just get disenfranchised at a higher level. And so what we did in the campaign is we went and asked a lot of Latinos and a lot of infrequent voters if they wanted to support Bernie. And But the key there. Even when campaigns decide they want to do that, they do it at the end. They don't start there. And because we started there early, that's why we had to build a relationship. And were we going to get them all? No. Was there going to be a big enough rate on return for an infrequent or newly registered to compare to somebody who always votes? No. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's one way to know that somebody's not going to vote for you, and that's if you don't ask them. So you go ask them, and then you make your case.
0: Damn, that sounds like rocket science, exactly.
2: Chuck. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, let's get into that, right? Um, Lewis is our numbers guy, right? Um, when you said, "Hey Danny, we need you to find someone uh that can do field," I said, "Well, that means I have to find somebody that knows field better than I do." And and that was Lewis Myers. He is he's got uh, uh, you and him probably speak the same wavelength when you guys are talking about numbers. But I mean, what happened in California, and we all felt this way, if we won Los Angeles, we knew we could win California, and if we won California, we knew we could take it all the way. Obviously, it didn't happen that way, and we can get into that a little bit. Before that, I want to talk a little bit about the numbers that were produced here in, uh, in, in Los Angeles and in California. Louis, Lewis, what, what did that look like, remember?
1: Well, no, but the way I look at Phil, Chuck, is I remember one time I was on the phone with you and you said, your job is to scale up Los Angeles County. And I remember Danny was on that call and Danny said to me, what does that mean? What does Chuck mean? I said, and I said to Danny, we were paid to know what that means. And I was, you know, being funny about it. And Danny knew what it meant. Uh, And then we just set out to build a program of, of, of leaders to absorb the energy of the current um, Bernie activists. Um, and I love in your point how you say activists aren't born, they're made. Because um, I think some activists think they're born and they don't, you know, and and they misunderstand what that is and you have to help them to be made as an activist um, and uh, and uh, activist organizer. So I just felt like our, our mission based on your strategy and based on your vision was to Build the capacity to be able to reach those voters, not only Latino voters, but all of those voters, but especially in the Latino community. I was very anxious about certain congressional districts where we weren't getting movement. And we literally diverted folks from the more affluent congressional districts, moved them into the CD 40 in East LA and South LA. Um, And then ultimately, it just culminated into beating. Joe Biden, 56 to 27 or, you know, something like that. What was the number 56 to 20% in CD 40 and, and, um, you know, 53% in CD 34. And, um, but, but Chuck, I, I do believe that there was a bump that happened as a result of us talking to less frequent voters, um, and building that momentum, you know, on that. So, and then ultimately to, um, you know, from the data that we got from Becca Rast, uh, you know, 2.2 million uh, doors knocked in the state of California. Uh, By the way, you know, a a third of it in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles County. We're very...
0: But yeah, we got to we're going to we're going to in your new edition, you got to update those numbers Chuck on the on the book. <laughs> and for those of you that don't know, go buy the book so you know what we're talking about.
1: <laughs> well, I I actually I really recommend the book because um if you want to be a good organizer, if you want to be a, cons- a good consultant, you got to study um folks who've been there and done that. Yeah. Um Chuck's journey is incredible. Um Chuck, I, I was born in a town called Roanoke, Virginia, and my, my uncle was a, uh, a railroad worker, a union guy, um, similar to the tire plant in Tyler. Um, I, I came from a family where they all worked in the sort of the same job, railroad workers, freight train operators, you know, like you and your family with the, with the Rochas. Danny, the entire Rocha family worked at the tire plant. And, you know,
0: but my point it, is chain chain what are they what do they informed, call it? Chain migration.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it informed, you know, Chuck's values in a lot of ways. And I just want to thank Chuck personally because um Chuck, you took a chance on me. I came out of labor. I worked local in small races. I was not the darling of the Democratic Party because in a lot of a local Democratic Party, because in a lot of ways I would take on candidates that that challenged the establishment. Um I questioned the same things that you questioned about what I would call the um, consultant um, industrial complex, where we just force, you know, mail down folks' throats and force the top five consultants in Los Angeles and Southern California to certain people. So um, I'm fascinated by your journey because you remind me, like you mentioned, water moccasin, right? In your book. Nobody knows what a water moccasin is. Do you, Danny?
0: I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> that's a snake,
1: <laughs> cotton mouth, water moccasin. But my point is you come from people, you know, um, similar to me. So I identified with that section in your book. And I thank you for taking a chance on me.
0: Come on, Lewis. <laughs> well, it was easy to do. do because know, this is not...
2: It's easy to yeah. do when you, you know, and when you think about, we've all if we were all 20 something year old organizers and green and didn't know no better right we wouldn't know not not to do what everybody tells us to do and too many grassroots activists think that that's just the formula to win all the time and it's not the reason you and Danny right. made history a was because of your staff not because of you of b course. not because of me Uh, but because we had all the things people like to step to me ignorantly and think that Bernie Sanders has done all the things he's done because he has great grassroots. Well, that ain't it. That's part of it. And it's a huge part of it, right? Like, Bernie Sanders would have been nothing without all the grassroots donations. Bernie Sanders would have been nothing without all the door knocks that you were allowed to do because he's got so many crazy volunteers who just shows up to believe in him and God bless them. That's a part of it. But if you just do that, you lose every time. Yes. Now, if you do that and you run a professional operation, people always forget about the $10 million of TV we bought in California uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that helped win. And people yeah. are like, well, we ran this great grassroots operation, Chuck, and it was, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But you can run all the fields you want, Bubba. You may, yeah. It may bump your number four or five points at the most, yeah. probably two or three. But yeah. right? I can get mm-hmm. you close and then you close it with the field, right? But we ran almost $3 million of Spanish TV. Right. I'm not, but if you just do the TV without the grassroots, you also lose. But the way to move people is TV, radio, mail, digital. I go into great detail in the book, and some of the most craziest jujitsu was what we were doing with non, uh, NPP voters, right? No party Mm -hmm. preference voters and and some of the stuff that we had thought about early on. And I talked about Jeff Weaver's vision of that. Like all of those coupled togethers help reflect what all of our values are. None of us are perfect. We're just trying to do as good a job as we can do for a candidate who's put trust in us. And that's what I saw with all of us. That's why I thought it was important to write the book to tell the story so that if there's some other kid in Roanoke if there's some other kid in Tyler, Texas or in LA who maybe didn't go to the best schools or not go to school at all, who makes mistakes, who uh, had a kid when I was a kid, who's not just a normal person. They realize that they could do this if you work hard, stay true to your values and just put in the time every day.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a section in the book where you, you are talking to a staffer on the Hillary campaign. And he says, you were on the top lines. You can, your firm was the top firm to be considered, but you didn't pass the vetting. And it was interesting because that crushed me because I thought, ah, you know, like I was reading your book, like a story, you know, like a narrative. I mean, I know the outcome, but at that moment, I could just imagine how you felt at that, at that moment. I, number one, I wonder where that staffer is. And then number now, and then number two, it struck me that when I read further, how that incident that, that 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 they were talking about, how in a lot of ways, Chuck, it appears that you were that folks. It was a systemic and class uh, bias that uh, that that you that you sort of walked into on that, and and then ultimately overcame though, but. Uh,
2: I think it goes to prove, and and this happens in the book three or four times, that everything happens for a reason. And at all these different points in my life, I think that, oh my God, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. And what Lewis is referring to is I've got a nonviolent felony on my record. Uh, And because of that, Uh, I have to carry around this scarlet letter of being a convicted felon, right? And so I've come past that point in my life. You know, you'll go on to read past what Lewis read about the first time I went with Bernie when he offered me the job five years ago. And I told Bernie about the instant that that had happened. And he said, well, uh, isn't that over, Chuck? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's been over. He goes, well, we knew about this the first time we talked to you. And that part of your life is over. You've served your probation. You've went past that. And he looked at me and he said, how long should you be punished for a crime? that you did back then and that you've already paid for. How long are you supposed to pay for that, Chuck? He's like, there was never a doubt in our mind. We wanted to hire you. Other folks had already validated you in the labor movement and the other movements. And you know, we're not going to punish you for something that happened back there. You've already paid your price. And so it was at that point that Bernie had me forever. I could have worked for lots of people, but I would be loyal to him to my die until oh. today, till to my line day, to my last days, because he was there for me. And that, when, when the Hillary team told me, and, and keep in mind for all you haters out there listening, this was before Bernie Sanders ever got into the race. It was just Hillary. And I thought she was going to be there by herself. And I needed to work. I just started a firm, right? Yep. And so um, – looking back on that, just imagine if I'd have got that job. Imagine if I'd have been stuck in a corner doing the Latino outreach part of something for this campaign I really wasn't having a good time with. She turns me down. I get an opportunity of a lifetime to meet Jeff, to get really close with Bernie, and to build out something really special in 15 and 16 that really was a springboard to make my firm go to a whole different level. It's kind of like the story of, of turning down the campaign manager job. Like you think that that would be the worst thing that could have ever happened to me, and I thought, when i turned it down i was making a mistake i talk about in the book how that was the best thing that ever happened to me and watching the stress and the things that faz had to put up with there is no doubt in my mind i would have been fired in the first 3 or 4 weeks cuz i would have punched somebody in the face because that's just how i am and i know i wouldn't have been able to handle it cuz my temper gets the best of me and nobody can step at me with some stupid shit cuz i am very redneck at certain points and i and faz was just the kindest man and the smartest man and and like he just was the perfect person. He got a great family. He don't cuss. He don't get excited. And I do all the opposite of that all the time.
0: <laughs> I I didn't get to meet Faz, but he sounds like a guy I could hang out with and drink. Dude,
2: some. <laughs> I, sh- I shit you not. I can see his house from where I'm sitting right now. He lives three doors down from me, Bro, you, in, we my my we
0: in my neighborhood. We got to come out there. We gotta come in out our, there. And... In, in our relationship,
1: Danny, I, I'm a little bit more like Chuck in terms of the quick temper. Yeah. And then Danny, Danny often has had to pull me down from uh, from the clouds or from a <laughs> from a brawl many many I, times.
0: I told Shelly the the hardest job I had to do Shelly for the campaign was managing the beast Lewis was <laughs> oh, or is. My whole
2: staff is like that. <laughs> they want me now to yeah. show them my tweets before I send them. <laughs> They're like, you can't fight with everybody, Chuck. <laughs> That's so anyway, good, man. Thanks for asking that question. And I think that that's why the book is not just about the Bernie Sanders campaign. I needed to write my story in Absolutely. the book because I needed people to know that it's possible, Danny.
0: Absolutely. I mean, look, it, it, it's a testament to why we all gravitate towards Bernie Sanders. It, his, it is his continuous advocacy for the down and outer you know, the, the people that could fall, easily fall through the cracks. And and then the communities that are the most vulnerable. That is who Bernie Sanders is. I am glad you added that into your book. Uh, I was telling Lewis when we were prepping for this podcast that, that although we wanted to hear your strategy talk, I wanted to hear your story. I wanted to hear what you're about, uh, which is why I love your quote about your grandkids. I am all about familia and and that, to me, can, gives me the drive and the ganas to continue to do what we do day in and, and day out. I mean, Lewis uh, uh, came up with our tagline for this podcast, if you don't tell your story, no one will. And I think you've done, you've done a great job in, in in doing that in your book, brother.
2: When you come from nothing, when you come from not institutional wealth or not, you don't have that much you can pass on to your kids or your grandkids. And I talk about that there are things you can pass on, right? Like I had my boy when I was 19, I had full custody of him within the first four months and I raised him by myself with a lot of help. I mean, L-O-T help from my mama and my grandmama. And like, I'm the most successful person in the history of my family. And that's a low bar. Most of my family's never been to college like me, but I know that I can, teach my grandkids and my boy how to be a man. And not in the way that America thinks you're supposed to be a man and be sexist to women and be rough and tough and be some bully, even though I just talked about my temper getting the best of me. But the legacy I can I can leave behind are these two beautiful grandkids of mine who can learn what it's like to be a man by seeing their abuelo, that's what they call me because they're little white kids, so I make them call me abuelo to remind them that they're <laughs> Mexican. Uh, and that's the legacy you can leave to them.
0: Yeah, yeah. That I mean that's one of the reasons why we're why we're here. We wanna leave these stories and we wanna leave these experiences behind to our kids, man, for sure. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean and but again, not I, I urge folks to to read this book. You're not only gonna learn about the behind the scenes and what it takes and uh, in terms of numbers and what it takes in terms of infrastructure, but you are gonna learn Who Chuck is and and why that campaign was run that way. Um, Why Chuck speaks of cultural competency. And Chuck, could you define um, because that to me was a very critical and important thing that we talked about at the retreat um, when we first when we all got together in L.A. for that secret meeting uh, for those two days. That struck me and that's a term that that I use, but I also reflect on a lot um, what cultural competency really means, you know, at a deep level, not just like being able to speak Spanish or have Spanish lit.
2: I think there's there's lots of cultures out there that, that consultants and vendors don't get the time to understand the nuances. They're just what I call churn and burn consultants. You go in, you run the same Social Security mail piece, you run the same ad about schools, you run the same stuff, right? But they don't understand the nuances of the different cultures within voter files, within segmentation of those voter files. And the point I normally make around cultural conflicts, there's also a demography uh, competency as well. Uh, my, Me and Danny, uh, and I know me and Danny are close to the same age, even though I, re- I look so remarkably better than Danny at my age. I've taken oh, such a good care of myself. That's because
0: you're about 25 pounds lighter than me, brother. I'm getting <laughs> our there. Our
2: kids Our kids are still Mexicans. They're still Chicanos and they still are our boys or our girls, but they act differently. They have a different culture because they've been Americanized to some degree. And then the grandkids more. But if you look at the voter file, the Mexican in Tyler, Texas, where I'm from, who speaks like me with cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, the, Cuban in Miami who is conservative, who's Republican, Uh, the Puerto Rican who was a U.S. citizen but had to register when they moved to the mainland, the Dominican in New York City, or uh, the Mexican in East L.A. On the voter file, all of those people are just Latino or just Hispanic on the voter file, but they could not be more different. Yeah, I mean, the way that they consume information, the way that they think about America, the way they think about voting and the nuances of their culture. Like learning about East L.A. and learning about the long history of activism in that community of the high school walkouts were all things I learned about later in life. Right. Where people at that same time in Tyler, Texas, my father was beat by his mama and daddy for speaking Spanish because you were not supposed to try to let anybody know that you were Mexican because you would get hurt, physically hung or hurt. So it was a big deal to assimilate. But these are the same Latinos on the voter file at different times in history, all at the same time back in the 60s and the 70s when East LA was like, La Raza, let's walk out, Chicano movement. You had my father saying do not speak Spanish, do not speak, do not teach your children Spanish and try to act like a white person so nobody knows. Like, but that's what I mean by understanding the competency of what the culture brings.
1: Exactly. Hey, Chuck, didn't someone in your family try to make their name a little bit more irish <laughs> yeah.
2: um, my grandmother how,
1: how, i forgot how i forgot how she broke it down like McRuiz That's or something exactly like McReese. Right. so or- her
2: family's <laughs> given name was r-u-i-z and later in life after they moved to east texas for the exact reason i just described to you exactly they changed their name to mc r-u-i-z wow. it would sound like McReese, but it's mcreece wow so, uh, when they would interview for jobs, they wouldn't know that they were Latinos so they could get the jobs because they were so racist in East Texas back then.
1: Jeez. Wow. But see, that's the question that
0: my, yeah. Go ahead. That brings history to life, man. so um, surprising, even though we've talked about it and read about it, but for you to say like, my grandma did that, that's just, that just brings history to life. Um, you know, a lot of people call, you guys know me as Danny, but but that that's my americanized name you know my mom uh named me daniel uh and uh and and even though that's a name you can use in english or spanish right comes from the hebrew language but but still just to cut it short for my older white teachers back in the 1980s in, in elementary to say danny and, and then they'd anglicize my last name by saying andalon danny andalon <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, even the yeah. actor,
1: um, Danny, even the actor Martin Sheen, Estevez, is his last name, yeah. Mexican-American. Yeah. He had to change it because he couldn't get a role in Hollywood back in those days, you know. Ooh,
2: hey, but Chuck, thing. let's
1: talk a little bit about like, uh, how you transitioned from uh, labor to starting your firm in a culture that would not allow or that – you know that it was a little bit more a lot more difficult for a brown consultant i also love how you talk about when you do your pitches hey danny this is cool i didn't get a chance to share this you call it the pinto plan the chevrolet plan and the cadillac plan um, <laughs> I, I t- man that is no better way to name a to, to name the ver- various tiers of a, of a proposal well, but Lewis, Yeah, tell us a little bit about that chef
2: well, first of all, I, I hope to think, and people have told me this, who are my friends, like you and Danny, are my friends, that when they read the book, it, they like this. They told me that it sounds like I'm reading the book to them, and that to oh me, yeah, is what I that's what I wanted. Right, I wanted it to be in my voice, and so I really did do the book. And so when you hear about these plans, I'm literally telling all of these stories and I'm just putting them down as I'm talking to you and telling you a story. It's yeah. There's a reason why there's not more black and brown owned firms in D.C. or L.A. for that matter. And there's probably more in L.A. than there are in D.C. for sure. And it's because it's it's almost impossible to bring it break into an infrastructure that's all built off of the good old boy system. And I mean that that used to be literally just a good old boy, white boy system. But credit to the white women who have owned their space. And now it's dominated by white women and white men. Uh, you know, Planned Parenthood, Emily's List, they really made space for white women. Uh, and I recognize them for that and they should have and good for them. But white women and white men run this city, run Democratic Consultants. And so if those people are all doing the consulting, where's the young black or brown sister or brother supposed to break in, right? As long as they're doing some trivial job, they're a field organizer, they want to run this or that, they do. But when they really get close to the big money, I just told you, I've got a hundred clients I've, I've done millions and millions of dollars worth of business and I've never even got to work on those races or for those committees because it's a, an insular cycle that nobody wants to talk about either. And now that I talk about it so much, I'm almost shunned as somebody who can't keep my mouth shut and should appreciate what I've got. And I just feel like as the senior most person of color uh, that I should be the one calling them out. Our party talks about Black Lives Matter. Our party talks about felon restoration. Our party talks about immigrant rights, but what about when the consultant, consultant and the consulting firms are owned by those three people? Like you can talk mm-hmm. about this, but that's why my expression of the diversity ends where the real money begins is derived from. Mm. Because I think that that's just, and it's just, I feel like it's my personal vendetta to do that so that the next round of people coming up can break in. If I can break some of those glass ceilings, and I'll conclude those remarks with this, is that the legacy that Danny talked about with my grandboy? sure, I say that on my bio and they are the light of my life, but the real legacy when it comes to my firm is what I've created with the firm. And what I mean by that is it's been in existence for 10 years and nine months now. And over that time period, I knew it was my job personally to train the next group of consultants to do this work that were people of color, mainly women of color. And so over that same time period of 10 and a half years, I've had over 100, 100 kids come through my firm that mentored under me, worked for me, and then went out and done their own firm, started their own business, work on Capitol Hill or lobbyist. Like my firm is not just a consulting firm. My firm is a consulting firm slash incubator for young minds. And you know what? For Bernie Sanders, I moved them all in the campaign right? Hmm. People say, oh, Chuck, he's just trying to make all the money. Damn right I am. I'm going to make all the money I can make. And if that makes you don't make you happy, then you can kiss my ass because that's how the white boys do it, right? But I also brought mm-hmm. as many young black and brown kids from my firm and from all around the country, even yes. people that used to work for me into this to be the next people to get in, right? Yep. Our people think that they have to apologize for getting power and have to apologize for making money. I'll be damned. Like this is how you build wealth. There's no wealth in our system and there's no wealth for our people in consulting or running campaigns. So I'm trying to create space for that, especially with the party and progressives. And I put you progressives out there, all you woke white progressives. Like you've got to be very intentional about your hiring and about who you use Or You never really break that cycle. There's been great progressives that have won congressional races this year. Guess what they all had in common? Except for Cori Bush. Is they all had white managers even for these black and brown progressives that were running as AOC protégés. Like, that's what I'm saying. You have to break this cycle. The progressive caucus in Congress who did a bunch of IE work this fall. Guess what? All their consulting firms were were run by white people. I mean this with no disrespect to white people. My mother is white. I love white people. I'm just talking about give us our part or you're not going to see the system change.
0: That is, dude, you are, brother, you are preaching to the choir. And I want to get up and yell, amen, because, you know, I grew up in a Pentecostal church <laughs> don't get me started um, but but that is so true and and for a lot of us that you know we grew up in politics in LA it, it was almost hard to point that out. Because the people that we needed to call out were our mentors and our leaders, and so mm-hmm. the discussion in the last couple of years for me has turned into what what I said initially. We have to figure out a way to break that cycle and empower the next generation, something that Lewis and I are dedicated to doing here in Los angeles, and whenever you need a team out here in l a or in California, you know you know you can you know you can count on us, brother.
2: Well, the city, but, the city council elections, and are coming up in the off year. We'll talk about that offline.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, Absolutely. mayor race, the mayor's race.
2: Yeah, exactly. So,
1: but, well, I but, do appreciate Chuck, it, guys. I do. Oh ahead. wait, Chuck, Chuck, can we? Oh, I, I didn't know if you were about to say goodbye to us, but because nope. I wanted to go get ahead, into Lewis. something. Oh yeah, get I wanted to get into November 3rd. a little bit about with all that you brought to the the Bernie Sanders campaign as the as a the, uh, senior advisor strategist for one of the most contentious. Presidential primaries in the history of the united in the history of our country what are your thoughts about the role or the lack of a role that you got to play in in the biden camp what's going on? Are, are there things in the Biden camp that are going on that we 're not aware of or that we have not that we have not picked up on in terms of your contribution to to that to that campaign? Are there any frustrations there are there any Sure, there's frustrations. I mean,
2: but to the winner goes the spoils, right? So, like, when you win, and we can go back and debate why he won and how he won the primary, and I think that was kind of a effed-up system as well. But he won, right? And as Bernie Sanders told me and all of y'all, our job now is to beat Donald Trump. So, that's where I focus. So, did I ever think, because I was the architect of the most – historic Latino outreach operation in the history of American politics. And for all you people listening and for all the people that did this campaign, uh, that's just a true statement. That sounds like I'm bragging, but there's nobody who's even come close to what the hell we pulled off in this primary. Right. And in the back of my book, because it ain't about Chuck Rocha. Sure. I was there and I made the space and I took the bullets for everybody. But in the back of the book, there's 200 names printed in the back of this book, which is every Latino staffer that I could at least, and I made a few mistakes on these that I got from HR that was just like, when people told you who they were, because there's people that were Latino on this campaign I never met, who probably worked for Lewis and Danny, because at some point, I couldn't hire everybody. So they were in charge of hiring. So because of them, we got to pull this off. And so did I think that Joe Biden's team were going to come run to Chuck Roach to save them? No, they're the damn nominee now. Now, they're going to go right back to running the same campaign that their white consultants tell them to run. And is it a good campaign? Sure. Could it have been better? Hell yes, it could be better, uh, but I couldn't just sit back and not do anything after what we had just accomplished. So I created Nuestro Pack, which is the largest Latino super PAC in America uh, that I never dreamed in a million years I'd be able to raise any money for because i would tried to run super PACs before just to get Latinos out. And I noticed if you're poor and broke, you never know many rich people that you could ask to give you money. So, we start this pack, you know, a month after Bernie's out and off the, and done, you know, give us something to do and to continue the vision of what we have proven we could do. And, you know, today I could not be more happy that, you know, we have over 2,000 contributors to Nuestro Pack. We've raised just short of $8 million. We've worked in every state getting the Latino vote out for Democrats and Joe Biden. And we've literally helped increase his numbers without him ever talking to me or his team ever talking to me uh, and without him. Now we've been a lot of, of, of great donors out there that gave us money, lots of grassroots donors. So I followed the Bernie Sanders model of taking money and putting it into play to go get Latinos out. And I reassembled the same team, which is pretty much my consulting firm from Luis and Eileen and all of us to do the work. So, you know, I was not going to sit by because Bernie Sanders said, Chuck, you've got to go get Latinos out for Joe Biden. We all have to do all we got to do for Joe Biden. And that's exactly what we did. And I'm I put out a tweet this morning, because we hit 2000 individual donors that I could not be more proud of what we accomplished.
1: Wow, that's incredible, Chuck. I mean, I think I like what you said about the purpose of Nuestro PAC. It, it was to, it's, it's, to continue, the, the door was opened by Bernie Sanders, and let's continue and, um, and not squander the opportunity. Uh, Lewis, of, Lewis, you had. read
2: the book, and yes. you know that I, it's start early, we started yes. early. We, yes. we did multi-layered communication, we do multi- everything that you read in the book of what you're supposed to do to, with from the Bernie Sanders campaign, we did it with Nuestro Pack. We ran our first Spanish ad before Joe Biden ever ran his first Spanish ad yes. at the end of June right did we just do tv no we did tv radio mail digital pandora everything
1: yeah it's incredible i mean and and they're fortunate that you were able to build that infrastructure uh and then bring your competency uh to give them that boost that um, that they need especially in those um, communities of color um so what do you th- what are your what's your vision or what do you th- what are your predictions for november 3rd are, do you see that, it, are we going to have a problem, a constitutional crisis? If we do, I've know, got two predictions. What are our next steps? Uh-huh. The first
2: prediction is that Joe Biden will win the presidency. we we'll con- we're going to pick up 12 seats in the house and we, and we win back the U.S. Senate. I've just been watching these numbers all summer. I'm in these campaigns. I'm running these IEs and I can read a poll and know that they're a good poll. We're going to win all three of those there's a chance we may not win the Senate or the presidency. But today, if you ask me, we win all three, right? Mm. Something could happen tomorrow, but we win all three. That's the first prediction. (laughs) The second prediction is after all these MFers get elected, they're all going to run towards the middle and they're all going to try to act like Republicans because now they all have to worry about getting elected in an off year when uh, we always lose seats. And that'll be the first narrative. Well, how do they keep these majorities on an off year when the president sits in power, we lose seats and blah, 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 which is true. But they also forget that it's also a redistricting year. So all these congressional districts are gonna look different to Danny's point. And he alluded to this in his opening comments. He didn't think I was paying attention, but I am a smart Mexican. So when they start following this population and these new congressional districts are drawn or drawn differently, that gives a That gives a particular power to the progressive movement out there who have now showed that we can primary Democrats in places and win seats. And when you have an incumbent running who's trying to run towards the middle in a place where they don't have to be in the middle, when when 50% of the districts with people that they don't know gives you a particular opportunity to have power. And you don't normally have that power that many, that, time, that much time. So I think it's up to us to hold these Democrats accountable once they're elected. And right. we have power.
1: And then Chuck, because that's, that's consistent with what Bernie Sanders is saying about 100 days post-election uh, or uh, post in January to move policies that that support that are for people. Otherwise he will support primaries and uh, uh, congressional primaries and so on. But I, I admire, that's an interesting analysis, Danny, what Chuck is saying, the, yep. because of the redistricting, yep. it's going to soften up those districts for, well, um, for a primary challenge.
0: Well, look, man, I have been talking to, starting with our friend Jimmy Gomez, our, my congressman, about being safe in a progressive wave. Like here, especially here in Los Angeles, it is time for those uh, representatives like Jimmy to just flex and be as progressive as we wanna be because we will have first shot at these seats that are redistricted uh, to To get back in. And so I am for that. Um, I would love to continue this conversation about strategy for 2022 and how we can help and what we can do to ensure that our country uh, begins to see uh, not just a shift in, you know, from Republican to Democrat, but, but a shift in a more empathetic and compassionate Soul that that we could uh, that we could help foster, and that that is going to be for me, um, you know, my focus, especially here in Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, when when eighty when eighty plus percent of Americans, Chuck, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, want Medicare for all. Um, we need to be able to to be prepared to maybe hold some folks accountable.
2: Yeah, and I think that it's it's going to come down to, you know, a lot of these organizations are going to want to have policies that they've been working on for years now that they have in, they're they in control of, air quote, everything, right? But the president can also, you know, start off by disengaging a lot of this rhetoric by things that he can do immediately, Joe Biden. It's like, as soon as he gets into office, he can rescind these racist uh, orders on uh immigration and muslims he can start a commission and not just a commission but go find the parents of these 545 children that are in cages at our damn border third you can shut down all these private prisons on our border as well like there are certain things he can do right away to be like i hear you i recognize i'm here because of you and i'm going to start we may not get along on everything but i'm going to start by getting these easy things out of the way right now that should have already ended and never happened under uh, donald trump and that's the way that we had uh we were going to do it with uh, with Bernie Sanders, and that's the way that Joe Biden could do it to start off on the right foot.
1: Yeah. So Chuck, I want to oh, go ahead, Danny.
0: I was just going to say, there you have it, folks. The predictions from the Latino mastermind. On the yeah. Bernie Sanders campaign.
1: <laughs> and, and Chuck, are you really busy um, leading up to, uh, are you are you doing a lot of media, obviously? A hundred
0: candidates. No, no, no I, I, don't even, tweet.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't even mean the candidates. I mean, I'm talking about like, do they got you? I mean, I want to say thank you for taking the time for this yeah. little um, startup that we're doing because I imagine you're jumping from interview to interview, um, uh, 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 you know, doing the doing those uh, the commentating on these things.
2: The circuit, as they call yeah. it. So uh, look, the, the real... Behind the the behind the scenes look is that things get are the crescendo was yesterday really like the, all the mail is out. Yeah, uh, we we did our last Spanish language radio buy this morning. There's not really much you can do at the end except boost buys by putting more money behind it. But I'm also a phone vendor, and you know Danny, you know Louis. Mm-hmm. When somebody gets another ten thousand dollars, what do they want? They, what can get you do the, the last two days? Just call more people, right? So, and so we've been telling it. our
0: folks over here
2: we've been, we've been doing a lot of phone work. Right. And so like I was on a conference call right before I got on with you with my national phone call center, who was like, We're at maximum capacity and we will not do any more ID calls or multi-question calls. The only calls we'll accept from any new person that calls you from now to election day is just a simple 30 seconds GOTV script because we've got to churn and burn because we can't get through all the phone calls that we need to get through right now because there's so Mm -hmm. much money out there. Let me end with this. And I, I do appreciate you boys taking the time. To invite me to be here. But I've been tracking for the last two weeks all the money that's being spent. And it's just ridiculous, the amount of money. And I'm going to put a tweet out uh, in the morning that shows the top 12 Democratic super PACs that are focused on white persuadable voters have raised $1 billion with Jeez. a B. And the three leading super PACs, which are mine Uh, Latino Victory and Somos PAC, Uh, as of October, just a couple of weeks ago, we all three together had raised $27 million. So that's $27 million spent on mobilizing Latinos nationwide compared to $1 billion. Now that is 2%, 2 2.3% of the money has went to Latino groups. When people want to step to us and say, oh, Chuck, why do Latinos underperform? Why do Latinos this? Why Latinos that? Until we fix that problem, And we get people to understand that our community, our consultants, our leadership, our campaign managers are worth the investment. Things are not going to change at the pace we need them to change. So I say everybody that's out there listening to this, ask who the manager is, ask who's making the mail, ask who's representing our community, because damn it, we've gotten big enough now where we should be asking these questions and demanding answers for our community. And I think that that's what I want to leave you with is that's the vision of what we built out T.O. Bernie with was to have a campaign that reflected his values and reflected the multicultural face of America. I was proud to be a small part of it, Two of the smartest things I did was hire Danny and hire Luis. And I couldn't think of anywhere else I'd want to be five days before the election, busier than a one-armed paper hanger over here is talking to y'all under the fancy microphone.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I appreciate it. it, Chuck, And and, uh, if you don't tell your story, no one will. So take us out, Danny.
0: Absolutely, man. Thank you again, Chuck. We love you, brother. We look forward to uh, getting into these fights, into these ruckuses with you. And as we always say, hasta luego los ángeles.